Well, here we are, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus, in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, would you use this prayer of Paul's in our hearts this morning, that right now, would you do that work in us, of strengthening us through this prayer, Lord, that it would do a work in causing us and leading us to pray in line with Paul. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is said, and you've heard the phrase, that kids say the darndest things, but, it, but it's also true that kids pray the darndest things, too. Uh, some of you parents have heard some rather goofy prayers, but let me give you just a quick sampling here. Uh, one kid prayed, Dear Lord, if you watch me on Sunday morning when I'm coming into church, I will show you my new shoes. Another kid prayed, Dear God, please change the taste of asparagus. It is gross. Another kid, dear God, my little turtle died. Is she up there with you? If so, she likes lettuce. And finally, dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) Now, it's funny, and yet what I detect, and maybe you too, is that in these prayers, uh, this at times is mimicking my prayers, a goofy rattling off of what I want from God. And worse for me is that many of my prayers begin with praise and adoration for God, but then very quickly slip into just merely, Lord, give me what I, what I really desire, what I really want. And I don't know, maybe I'm the only one here, but I don't know if your prayers begin in prayers, but then suddenly drift towards something completely different. I don't know if you're like me, where you're, you begin with praise for God, and then um, the next thing you know, you're praying for help for a family member, um, and then you begin to suddenly think about your to-do list, and then you never really end the prayer in amen, or it never really concludes at all. It just, you kind of drifted from prayer to, to self-thinking. And I, I think this is something that we all have, which is this haphazard, uh, mixed, quickly off-track type of praying. But this morning, in this passage, what we get from Paul is a model of prayer. And it's going to help us see what to specifically pray for. What we read from prayers, uh, Paul's prayer and doxology here today is a passage on prayer that I think will help us on two fronts. So, on one hand, I hope that you will see and catch this with me, that this is a model prayer. This is an example prayer to us. 
But on another hand, I hope you will see also that if what Paul is praying for is he's praying for the Ephesians by extension for us, that if this, when the Lord answers this prayer, it actually will help our prayer lives to be more genuine. It'll help us not to just double down in our own strength and effort in prayer. That's not what we need. If I just double down in my own strength, it'll last me a week. But what I need actually, and what you need, is a relationship with our creator that is deep enough that it percolates out in prayer. That's what we need. And so we see that here in this morning's passage. We'll see it specifically in, in two sections. One, praying with spiritual intention, verses 14 through 19. And then praying to glorify God in verses 20 and 21. That's how our time will unfold. Praying with spiritual intention, 14 through 19, praying to glorify God, 20 through 21. And if I could begin by trying to give you what I think is a summation of this piece is, is that what we see is God's riches through Christ and the gospel leads Paul and us to pray for an abundance of these riches in our lives and in turn to bring glory to God. So first, We'll see here praying with spiritual intention, verses 14 through 19. And here I say with spiritual intention because we are struck with how this prayer of Paul's is devoid of physical wants and needs. Now, please hear me on this. It is not wrong to pray for physical wants and needs. And especially because the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, that's a physical want and need. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with praying for that, but also putting it in the scope of the Lord's prayer. Remember, that's just a fraction of the prayer. And much of the prayer is geared towards our spiritual needs. And so we see that emphasis here as we dive in. Again, last week I mentioned that Paul, he's going to pause on his train of thought for a short interlude. Remember we said that the, the book of Ephesians is very logical going piece by piece by piece. But last week we saw he paused at verse one of chapter three. He drilled down on this idea of the mystery of the gospel, which was in connection with the the whole mystery being revealed to the spiritual beings in the heavenly places. If you didn't hear that message, please go back and listen. And then we said he's coming right back up to the surface to continue on at verse 14. I showed you that by the phrase where Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, verse 1. And then again, he says, for this reason in verse 14, where we're picking up here. And this is, where I want to remind you what that reason is, where he says in verse 14, for this reason, he's reaching back, I believe, to chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And what we saw there in chapter 2, 19 through 22, was God's reason to plan for humanity was to join together natural-born enemies, to join together Jews and Greeks alike, to bring them together into one people of God who would love each other and love their creator. It's a wonderful plan, and it was pictured particularly for us, for you and I. The images that we were given were things like a body, a human body, members joined together, hands, arms, feet, legs. Uh, We also saw it with the temple structure, that we are the temple that now houses the Spirit of God. We saw it as in a picture of a house, uh, in which you, we are the studs and, and the sheetrock, if you will. And this is important for us because this is what brings Paul to this point here. He says, I'm thinking of all these pieces about how God's redemptive plan to bring these people together. Now, for this reason, this is the reason I'm praying for you. 
And the, as he prays here, we note his posture. He says, I bow. For this reason, I bow. And the posture is important here because the typical way of Jewish praying, and even it seems to be the early Christians prayed this way too, standing, arms stretched out like so. But there are special moments in the scripture where we see an intense prayer. We think of the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane where he bows. There, there, there these intense moments where bowing seems to be the appropriate posture. And here, Paul says, as I'm reflecting about what God has done in the Ephesian church, this leads me in an intensity to pray with my whole body in a posture of bowing. And what we see then is as he's praying for on behalf of these um, Ephesian Christians, the recipient of the prayer is not just God generically. The recipient of the prayer is God the Father. And he is the Father of every family on heaven and on earth. That is mentioned there in verse uh, uh, 15. And as he says this, it brings to mind that he is the Father of his creation. And so I think in light of chapter 3, recall, we, we're talking not just about the Father of, you know, the mountains and the sea, not just of the plants and the animals, and not even just of Adam and Eve and, his, and the children of Adam and Eve, not just us, but the father of his created beings, the angelic beings, the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places. And I think Paul is saying, that father is whom I'm addressing, the one who's created it all. And at this point, he begins to unpack three things that he desires for them. Strength, love, and fullness of God. And this is how this section kind of unfolds. And you'll see that this unfolding comes about because of the purpose clause and order that or so that. We see that at 16, we see that at 17, and we see that at 19b here as we're reading through. So we'll cover each of these. First, the strength, prayer for strength. Verse 16, when Paul was Writing this letter to the Ephesians, he was also likely around the same one or two year block that he was writing to Timothy. Um, and in 2 Timothy, he closes that letter out and encouraging Timothy uh, in what uh, Pastor Tim preached on recently. Timothy, preach the word. Don't depart from this word. Continue with what you received. And as he was, as he was writing Timothy, it was around the same uh, two-year block that he was writing the book of, or the letter to the Ephesians. And this is around 61, 62 AD. And so as he's writing there, Paul says, I want you, Timothy, to remain committed to the message. And the reason is interesting, because as you recall, who was Timothy pastoring? Timothy was pastoring the Ephesians. And there's a little connection here I want you to catch where he says in 2 Timothy 4.17, he was speaking about Alexander the coppersmith who did him great harm. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At At first offense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against him. But then listen to what he says here. He says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. 
so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles, they might hear it, so that I was rescued from the lion's mouth, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we see this idea of strengthening and connection with the message. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, one of the chapters in 1 Corinthians. <laughs> He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Same word, be strengthened. The connection I want you to see is the strengthening is connected to faith, being committed to what we believe. And and note here, this is important. This is not in the active. There's the form, the active form. You go be strengthened, strengthen yourself. You go do this work. You lift the weights, you get stronger. This is in the passive. This is in the passive. That means you can't do this for yourself. The prayer is to God to do this work in you. This is where you, my friends, are crying out to God, saying, Lord, would you do in me and through me what I cannot do on my own? Would you strengthen me to remain with the message of the gospel? Would you strengthen me for the mission that you have before me? Maybe for you, it's raising difficult children. Maybe for you, it's suffering through a season of health issues. Maybe it's living with an unbelieving spouse. Maybe it's feelings of grief. The difficult task of working in a, in a workplace environment where you are harassed for your faith. Maybe with, even within your own family, treated with contempt. And this is where you need to pray that God would strengthen you to hold on to this message like Timothy like Paul's praying for these Ephesians, that they wouldn't depart from this because life is difficult and the, the temptations to be pulled away from this are strong. So we pray, Lord, if it were up to me, I would tap out. Please strengthen me to do as you have called us to do and walk in all that means for us to be a follower of you, a man or woman who is of faith in Christ. Let us be, church, like the armored trucks that go to the banks and the ATMs to pick up and drop off cash. You know what I'm speaking of? I mean, they are strengthened. They are fortified. Uh, this is what we're asking God to do in us, to make us like one of those. Kent Hughes, he says, paper bags are not fit containers for valuables. In other words, we who are indwelt by God himself and contain the precious truths of the gospel... If we're not fit, if we're weak and we walk around, we cannot carry properly these riches in us. This this would be awful. We would cave. We will fold. The moment the pressure is turned on, we will fold. And so pray that God would strengthen us to remain strong in what we believe and know is true from his word. And so a, a fitting prayer that you and I, we should return to over and over again is verse 16. So that the According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. Uh, in fact, one good thing you could do is write verses 14 through 19 out on a card or put them on a, on a paper or print them out or something and put them with your directory. Put them in your Bible somewhere where you will come again and again and say, what is it again I'm to be praying for? And this first thing gives us pause, which is to be strengthened. But Paul doesn't stop there. He moves on to include love in verses 17 through 19a. 
And there's a bit of a paradox there. I hope that you, as you read through the word, you pause and you begin to say, now, wait a sec, how does this work? How is this supposed to be? Paul is asking that we would have knowledge of what is seemingly unknowable. Do you see that? How he says this, that we would have uh, this ability to comprehend a love that surpasses knowledge, in other words. Just because we're not able to fully comprehend what is seemingly unknowable doesn't mean that we cannot bask in some of it. I mean, think of it in, in these terms. It's probably not news to you, but I cannot drink all of the world's water. If I do, it, it would be the end of me. It's impossible. You cannot drink all the world's water, but that's not going to stop me from going and grabbing a glass if I'm out working in the yard and it's hot. Of course, I'm going to drink one. I'll drink two. And this is how it is with God's love. You're, there's no way you, you can consume it all or understand it all or know it all. And yet that should not stop you or I from saying, Lord, just let me have a glimpse, a fleeting glimpse of your love, just a bit of it, enough to sustain me, enough to give me life, just like the glass of water is needed for life. I need God's love to truly live. Recall that in Revelation, we read that the church of Ephesus had an issue with love. They left their first love. Love is central. And when we lose that love, we lose Jesus. I couldn't help but think of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Famous preacher, Dr. Barnhouse, he pointed out that love is intrinsic to all the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5. He said, love is the key. And listen to how he connects love to each of these pieces. He says, joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. And self-control is love holding on to the reins. So good. This is why it's appropriate for Paul to pray for us that we would be absorbed in love. Catch, catch the flow here with verses 17 through 19a. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Our roots, he says, our roots, we are to be rooted in love. You picture a tree, its roots go down. What is it that's strengthening us? It's God's love. Then he says another term that's not agricultural, but architectural. He says that you'd be grounded. In other words, it's a, it's a word that's used, a foundation. That everything that's built for you, that it would be built upon love, love of God. God's love for you, that that would be your foundation, that that would be what your roots are tapping into. This is what gives us life. This is what supports us. This is where we find at the very core what Paul is desiring that we would have. And he says here that the love of God is to be almost in a fourfold way. He's thinking three-dimensionally because recall he's, this is a well-known passage where he says that the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love. You've probably heard this numerous times. And there is a sense that, you know, one could consider this as we just think, well, this is just a really, really big love. 
You know, it's just a big, big love. And I think that that's true. There's also a sense in which you can kind of begin to think of each of these on their own terms, where you begin to say, this is a a love that is wide. You know, even as Ephesians has been highlighting, is this not a love that is wide? It's not just for a narrow sect of people. This is a love that spans the globe. And not just wide, but it's also a love that is long. Its length is grand. It stretches the the span of time, going back thousands of years and, and, and possibly forward thousands of years and into eternity for sure. And it, it's not like a love like ours at times that sadly fades. It's, it's a love that remains strong. It's a love that is high. It's high enough that will carry us to heaven. It's a love that is carried us up so much that those marred by sin and yet covered by his grace will dwell with him in glory. Further, it's a love of Christ that is deep. It's a love that no matter how far you feel from him, you are not unreachable. It's a love that will go to the depths of the ocean to get you. And for those of you, and some of us here, we have a difficult time sensing God's love. There, there may be some here, they say, you know, I, I have you know, this sense, an idea, cognitively, like mentally, I can get my mind wrapped around this idea. Okay, God loves me. And yet, in the heart, we can say, well, we struggle really to to sense this. It's, it's almost like fog. You try and like grab at this thing. And as you're grabbing at God's love, trying to understand it and, and really feel it, it's like it's gone. It dissipates. You can't really get a hold of it. And if that's you this morning, can I just encourage you on a few fronts? Number one, I want to encourage you, do not let go of desiring God's love. Don't ever cease to keep asking, God, would you give me that? Pray for it. Desire it. Ask for it. That you would comprehend on a deeper level God's love for you. But second, remind yourself frequently, Christ loves you. And one day, even though you know that now mentally, one day you will fully comprehend it. You will fully feel the reality of that. So Thomas today, if he, even if he's going, I'm feeling dry today, Lord, I can say maybe next year I'll sense a deeper presence of God's love. And if not, then someday when I'm in eternity, in eternity with him, I will surely feel it then. There's no doubt. And that spurs me on. Keep plotting. Keep trusting. Keep asking. But third, Another encouragement to you who struggle, along with me, to sense at times God's love, can I encourage you to go to the place where God's love is expressed most? Don Carson shares a story in which he was in Papua New Guinea, and he was there with many, many missionaries who had come together all over the island. And as he was there, um, apparently what had been taught to some of these missionaries is they had been through some pretty traumatic disasters uh, one wife had her husband had his head taken in with an axe. There was another, uh, you know, other missionaries there who had suffered great trauma. And in the midst of that trauma, they, some of them had begun to doubt, does God really love me? Is God really a loving God? How could he allow this to happen? And there, there had been some who come to the island and said, well, if you want to, to comprehend God's love, perhaps you can do some things to help yourself see that. And so, the, the, the teacher came along and said, well, why don't you just go back to your birth and envision, just think through, envision your birth, you're coming into the world, and picture Jesus standing there, 
Picture Jesus catching you and cuddling you and embracing you. And then you can begin to, to think of God's love. And Carson is listening to some of these missionaries share how they've been doing this. And they had had deeper sense of God's love from doing this. And this is typical of, of Don Carson. He says something like, oh, well, that's interesting, but you chose second best. And they said, excuse me? Oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not throwing stones, but I think you've chosen second best. They said, well, how dare you? He says, well, listen, over and over in Scripture, no matter where you go, nowhere we are encouraged to picture Jesus standing between our mother's legs. Nowhere are we even to picture that we're on hospice, we're in the hospital bed, and this is our last days or moments that we're to picture Jesus right there holding our hands, taking us into glory. Now, you can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But the primary place for those who struggle of us to struggle to understand and comprehend and feel God's love He says the place scripture goes over and over and over again is not to our birth nor our death. It's to the cross. This is where we go. If you want to understand and see the love of God magnified, it's always in his self-sacrificial giving so that by grace through faith, you may be saved and be purchased and, and some of us here who have yet to truly believe, who have yet to truly walk with this Jesus and, and are wondering, what does it take for me to become a Christian? And maybe some here are going, you know, I, I want to become a Christian, but maybe that means I need to, I, I don't know, do I need to start giving? Do, do I need to start being nicer to my family members? Should I, um, you, you know, should I stop cussing so much? What is it that I need to do to become a Christian? And I'd say, okay, fine, you can do some of those things. That's great. But the primary thing that you must do, what is absolutely a non-negotiable, is you must reflect and believe in the gospel. You must go to the place where Christ has, in grace, paid your debt, taken your place, and that is on the cross. There's nowhere else, friend, that you will find God more clearly displaying his love for you and then giving up his own life so that he could give you life. This is the place that we find the love of God. And so I encourage you, Christian, come again and again and reflect on that. We then come this morning to the final request of Paul. He says that, so that, and that. Verse 19b, where he says, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This is the final thing. Strength, love, fullness of God. This last purpose for Paul's prayer is the fullness of the Lord, that it would be ours. So that this last purpose of of Paul's prayer seems to be a little bit more general. And at the same time, it had me scratching my head. I'm thinking, okay, fullness of God, what does that even mean? And it seems that some take this as to pertaining to what Paul has just been praying. I want you to have the fullness of God, which is what? That you'd be strengthened and understand his love. And they say, that's the fullness of God. Others come along and they say, well, you know, I think this is actually referring to the character of God, God's attributes. So the fullness of God is that he's truth and that he's sovereign, that he's love and that he's all knowing and all power and all these things. That's the fullness of God. So Paul is praying that you would have all of that. Still, there are others who see back in the Old Testament, recall that the fullness of God's spirit was dwelling in the temple. And so they say, oh, well, here in Ephesians, 
We are the temple of God. And so it's totally fitting. This makes perfect sense to me that God's spirit is in with us, the temple. So would he fill us completely in this temple so that we are all dwelling with God's spirit in us? I say, ah, that makes sense. But then I began to think, well, wait, which one of these is it? Which is it? How does this work? And I was walking back and forth and I was scratching my head and I was, uh, you know, asking the Lord, make this clear. What is the fullness of God? And you know what I came to? The answer was, I don't know. So what do you do when you don't know? You cheat. And I started to think, well, this word fullness and checking it out in the Greek, yes, it really does mean the fullness. So working a bit deductively rather than inductively, I, I came to see that surely this would include his moral excellence. Surely this would include his attributes, that we would have these reflected in us, that we would comprehend his moral character, his attributes. Surely this would include his strength, this kind of strength that he has for us and the unknowable love that we are just barely tapping into. And surely this would include his spirit filling our temple. All these things, that, that this is all of it, all of him, everything filled for the fullness of. Yes, this is what I think this lands on, how this lands on us, that we would have all that God has for us in giving himself to us. And friends, if you could just think of it, if we were able to be strengthened by God, by faith to fully and deeply, committedly believe the truth of his word, and we were able to truly and fully comprehend his love for us, surely this spills out onto our love for one another. And in, in, in all of this, if there was any gap, if there was anything missing left over that we didn't have of God, Paul's prayer is, Lord, would you give that to them? Would that be ours? And so at this point, you ask, well, what's left? What's left except to lift up God and to, to glorify him? And this is where we see Paul in these last couple verses, uh, 20 and 21, praying to glorify God. If I could take a page from the self-help section of the bookstore, you will find many financial books that will talk of a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset. Uh, When you have a scarcity mindset, you think that there's just a little bit of something left. And the goal is for you to have enough money or be at the right place at the right time to get those limited resources. There's only so many cans on the shelf. Other people have been grabbing them. There's one left. You got to go in, have the cash in hand, reach at the right time and get it. And then it's yours. That's a scarcity mindset. An abundance mindset says it's cheap and there's just, there's an abundance of it. You can't run out. And Paul here does not pray for us with some sort of scarcity mindset. You you know where you begin to say and pray as if God is busy. He's running low on resources. I don't don't know if you ever think this way. God just did a miracle in somebody's life over here. God has strengthened another believer over here. And Lord, I know you're busy and I know you don't have very much left. And I know you can barely hear me and I'm screaming out to you. Would you just give me a little something? Because I know there's, it's a scarcity thing and I could just grab that last can. That's wrong-headed. It's not how Paul prays. The Christian understands God has an abundance. His store is overflowing with riches. And so the prayer then, the model that Paul gives us, is that we pray 
Knowing God can abundantly give us anything. There's an abundance of God's riches to give us his strength, his love, his fullness. And yes, even at times to answer our physical needs as well. But don't think for a minute that he cannot answer our prayers. That he, will, that he doesn't have enough left. Kevin DeYoung writes on this saying, The reason we doubt God's ability to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think is that we grossly underestimate the power at work within us. We do not have a little 9-volt battery of spiritual power inside us, but an entire nuclear power plant of divine might. The same power that raised Christ from the dead now indwells us by his presence and spirit. We ought to anticipate and request that God will overcome big sins, change bad habits, and make us into better followers of Christ. As long as he desires to get glory through the church and in Christ Jesus, we can be sure that God in ways that are surprising, and at times imperceptible, that he will magnify and exceed our expectations to his everlasting honor and our everlasting joy. This is in line with what Paul closes as he glorifies God. Now to him, verse 20, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church And in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Paul then closes out the very first half of this letter with a doxology. Uh, Doxology, you can break it down, it's easy. Doxa, meaning glory. So, this is a gloriology. It's essentially where we praise, where we boast, where we brag, where we lift up something or someone. If you hear someone going on and on about their new favorite thing, a vehicle, a diet plan, for example, well, they're glorifying it. They're essentially lifting it up. Or we speak highly of our favorite person, like an actor or a musician. We're glorifying them. But what we see here, Paul, is he's transitioning from doctrine in uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Remember, we said that that's the teaching, that's the doctrine. And then next week, we're going to turn to the second half of the letter where we see the application, the way that this tr- teaching, this doctrine now causes us and pushes us to live as a, as a family of God. And on this hinge, as he's moving from doctrine to application, he begins to just praise God, to lift him up, to glorify him. Uh, Like a good tour guide, let me remind you briefly of the main takeaways that would lead Paul to this moment. If we could just kind of pull in all of chapters 1, 2, and 3, we'd see in chapter 1, God's plan and purpose was to ensure that we would be his people because our heavenly Father in love chose us to become holy and blameless through grace. We saw in chapter 1, the Father's plan to send the Son of redemption and the movement of Paul's then comes to a final resting praise and the sealing of the Spirit. Then in chapter 2, we saw that by grace through faith that we've been saved and made alive to walk as God's uh, masterpiece, his handiwork. We also saw that salvation in Jesus saves our souls, but not only this, it saves our relationships. We remembered that We have been reconciled, not just to God through Christ, but to one another. In chapter 3, last week, we saw Gentiles are members of the same body with the Jews through the gospel, which is God's manifold wisdom being revealed to the spiritual powers. And all of this, as Paul is taking all of this in, it brings him to a place where he says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. He 
boasts, he brags, he makes much of God, lifting up and glorifying him. And finally, catch the timeline of this doxology. The glory is that this should be given to God and never fade, never stop or cease. It will continue to flow from the church forever and ever. So church, don't be, don't be cynical. Don't doubt the goodness of God. Therefore, believe that if we pray this prayer for one another, in, indeed can and will, will fulfill what God has planned to give us in him, this strength, this love, this fullness of himself. As I see this in light of 1 John chapter 5, where John writes, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. This is what the church does. We come and we say, Lord, would you give us this? And even last night, there were a few of us who gathered for our monthly uh, night of prayer together. And we prayed for one another. We prayed for you all that we would be strengthened by God, that we would have the love of God, that we would have the fullness of God. And it's Increasingly, my favorite night of the month where we gather together, where we cast aside our own strength and we just say, Lord, we just need you. I like how one pastor put it. He said the monthly prayer night is a, it's a meeting that is actually like a lighthouse. When a few gather together in deep prayer, um, you know, our heart is that we are helping all the other ships out at sea not to crash upon the rocks. So in other words, you don't have to have a hundred people in the lighthouse to keep the ships going out there and being safe. You really only need one person in the lighthouse who lights the, the, the flame and moves the reflective mirror back and forth. And of course, the more who gather to do this, the better. But it just was a reminder to me as I thought about Paul. Here Paul is alone in prison. And as one who's in the lighthouse, praying that God would give the Ephesian Christians these things, that they would be strengthened, that they would have a a better understanding of God's love, that they would have the fullness of God. And I pray that 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 would be our prayer as well for one another. Well, I could go on and on and on and on and on about prayer, but let me just land this plane because sometimes, you know, they say you can... You know, you keep talking the talk, but you just need to walk the walk. So let me pray. (laughs) Would you join with me? Father, our prayer this morning as we close is to be in line with Paul's prayer. Uh, Lord, I know that our prayer lives at times are weak. Uh, They are scattered, mixed, distracted. But if what Paul prays for the Ephesians, if what we pray for one another here is answered, Lord, I know that our prayer lives would increase in depth because we really know and believe that you are listening. And it is your joy to answer our prayers. It's your joy to give your people who struggle in a myriad of ways that you would give us a, a deeper sense of your love and that we would be firmly committed to your message and that we would have the fullness of you. And we ask for that now. In Jesus' name, amen.